Nearly a year ago, our entire world came to a screeching halt. Although it was unexpected and largely unwelcomed, we were all given a unique opportunity to critique our reality from the stillness of our homes. As we watched a global pandemic take the lives of millions and racial tensions soar, we were asked by so many to peel the wool from our eyes and really see the injustices of our nation, the imperfections in our systems, and the inequalities in our world. With that came differences in opinions. How should we reconcile ugly parts of our past? How should media and entertainment evolve? Should we face up to our history or should we erase it? We shouldn't be editing anything out of a film that came from the past. Um, uh, you know, that that's too, uh, rather than face up to our history, that's erasing our history. And that is making it seem as if we didn't have those problems in the past. Like imagine if we took the racism out of a movie well, 50 years from now, somebody's going to watch that movie and think, oh, like America's never had a problem with race, yes. right? So that, that would be wrong. However, there are ways of reconsidering things, as we always do with history, where we say, you know, we used to venerate this, but actually, maybe we should take a step back and say, here's why this was, you know, denigrating human dignity, or here's why this was perpetuating harmful stereotypes, or here's why this isn't presenting the whole truth about what was going on at the time. That's Alyssa Wilkinson, film critic and culture reporter at Vox. As someone who has dedicated her life to critique and culture, we thought she would be the perfect guest to discuss the importance of critique in our society today. In today's balanced conversation, we answer this question. Is the entertainment industry dictating what is going on in our world, or are we shaping our society and the entertainment industry is simply creating content as a response? Without further ado, here's your host, Renya Mancarios. Welcome to the Balanced Voice Podcast. We are thrilled to have with us from New York, Alyssa Wilkinson. Alyssa, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's so good to have you. So I am so fascinated by you and your work. I'll give a short summary, but I invite our guests to go to alyssawilkinson.com to read all about you. So you are a film critic and culture reporter with Vox.com. You are also a professor of of English and humanities at King's College. Your area of focus to me is fascinating. Film, TV, culture, the arts, and often where they intersect with media religion, and rhetoric. My God, have you been busy the last few years? Uh, You're a member of the New York Film Critics Circle, the National Society of Film Critics, and a long list of others. You've served on juries at the Sundance Film Festival, the Hamptons International Film Festival, and a long list of others, and on committees for groups including Gotham Awards and the Sundance Documentary Film Project. You're a member of the New York Film Critics Circle, the National Society of Film Critics. You've written essays and commentaries, features, and criticisms for Rolling Stones, The Washington Post, The Atlantic. You've been a guest commentator on PBS, CNN, BBC America, NPR, and so much more. You've written a book, How to Survive the Apocalypse, Apocalypse, Zombies, uh, Cyclones, and Politics at the End of the World. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But my gosh, it's so much. And we're so thrilled to have you. First of all, how are you and how are things in New York? 
cold. <laughs> it's I know. Cold here. I know. <laughs> That's most of it. But um, yeah, we're we're chugging along. I guess typical January around here. But kids, are you like teaching virtually? Um, I teach half time in the classroom and half time virtually. So I actually got my first vaccine shot last week and waiting on the second one because if we're in person, we are eligible. So I'm looking forward to that kicking in. And in the meantime, just, you know, doing the best we can to limit the amount of time we're spending in the classroom. Yeah, it's. I read your back to school um, entry, I think, on your website, which was really interesting. You talk about getting the first, I think, Moderna vaccine. Um, but okay, so let's talk about you and this really unique, I mean, because your background is, is not, th this isn't where you were working a few years ago, even though mm -hmm. this is your life's work, but it's so interesting, the mix of like film and TV, I think with pop culture, religion, uh, how did you become interested in this and, and become who you are today? Um, it's a long, confusing story. Um, and I've tried for years to make it more intelligible, I guess. Um, my my academic background is actually in um, information technology and computer science. And when I got a job in that, I discovered that this was not something I liked very much. And so while working that job, I started sort of figuring out how was I going to move into a different area of working for the rest of my life because I just couldn't imagine working in financial services and technology. Turned out the recession hit right about then um, because this was just prior to the mortgage-backed securities crisis. So, oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah, so I actually left just in time, um, although it's not like the humanities is lucrative, but I, I wound up in grad school. I started kind of writing about film because I was interested in arts and culture generally my whole life. And I sort of discovered I could write about it and that it was a really great way to think about it. Um, so film was accessible to me. It's, you know, New York, we have the best film rep scene in the world. And so I had that kind of ability to get an education in it um, just by going to the movie theater. And then I started writing got a master's degree in humanities, then I got a MFA in nonfiction writing. All these things have kind of been playing together my whole life. Um, and I started freelancing real early on because I, well, frankly, because I was bored at my job. And so freelancing was something to do, um, you know, in my spare time in a way to kind of process the things I was thinking about and uh, if you keep writing long enough, and if you're halfway decent at it, people will keep hiring you. So I eventually ended up um, kind of straddling a line between Christian media, which was a little more close to the kind of stuff I had grown up reading, and mainstream media, um, where people were interested in my ideas, and they were also interested in the way that pop culture and religion intersect, which I've always found interesting to talk about. And then after a few years um, being the chief film critic at Christianity Today, which is kind of middle of the road uh, place to work, I um, I got a call from Vox and they were opening a new film pr uh, position and they asked if I wanted the job and I said, sure. So I've been doing that since just before the 2016 election. Oh my gosh. Like I cannot even imagine what this has been like the last few years and what makes you such an interesting guest for our podcast specifically is we're all about balanced conversations. And it, this has come at a time when you can no longer have a balanced conversation. And I've been really intrigued by um, one, the just the role of critics today when everybody thinks they're a critic and you have to be really careful about exercising an opinion in general. 
Um, and I like how you you talk about cr critics being, you know, art about art, but we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but you marry that with where we're just going as a society with pop culture and TV and even TV. We, we had this incredible conversation with Tim Winter of the Parents Television Council, where it's just like Disney shows that are really catered to middle schoolers are talking about things that are like, if most parents knew, they'd be like, oh my God, I thought I could just turn it on and sit back and not worry. And it's actually like, no, you can't be watching this. So where the TV industry and film industry has gone in general, and then how that intersects with whatever a person's faith is or belief system, we loved all of it. And so I was like, I have to have you on. We're dying to talk to you. But the unique mix between like the film culture, the film industry, TV, and religion. I, I feel like there's a lot of tension there and Hollywood doesn't seem to be interested. And I, I don't know, I'm asking this. They don't seem to find religiously driven films to be blockbusters. And I'm not just speaking about Christian films. I'm just saying films that have inherent religious ideas. Are Is that what you're seeing and finding? So religious films do make a ton of money. I mean, we have to start out by acknowledging that The Passion of the Christ, which came out in 2004, I believe, is still the number one highest grossing R-rated film of all time by a I long, not, long margin. I did not know that. Okay. Way ahead of the next one, which I think is Deadpool. So, of course, in R-rated film that those don't make that much film. Uh, sorry, R-rated films don't make that much money to begin with. So that's not super surprising, but The Passion of the Christ holds a record by any standards. Um, so at least when it comes to Christian films, they do make tons of money. A, a few years ago, um, the movie Breakthrough, which starred Chrissy Metz and Topher Grace, that was the number one earner um, as far as net revenue for, for the studio that made it. So that like those kinds of things are surprising, I think, to people because it seems like those movies fly under the radar. Um, and there's a couple things that are going on there. One is that they are made for a niche audience. It's a large niche, but they're made for a niche audience, right? Which is people who want to see movies like that, who will pay money to see movies like that, who are looking for kind of inspirational content. It's not super religious. It's sort of riding a line of like appealing as broadly as it can. Um, and then also, you know, I would say Hollywood is not, people give off the impression that Hollywood is anti-religion. That's not true. Hollywood goes where the money is, and the money right now is certainly in that area. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of people who consider religion to be sort of like a hobby <laughs> for people who practice various religions, right? Um, that it's like a thing that doesn't really matter to you so much. It's not even as... Um, important as your politics. Um, it's just sort of like a fun thing that you do for community, or maybe it's like some crazy extreme thing you do. And those are kind of the two divides. And this was much more true in the 90s. If you watch movies from the 90s, like religion never crops up. Over the past 10 years, I'd say I've seen a change um, where there's really intelligent TV and film being made um, about religious characters or religious plots, but often they're coming at it with a seriousness that isn't um, isn't maybe easy to digest, right? So you end up with things like the HBO show The Leftovers, which I think is one of the smartest, most religiously questioning, sort of most provocative 
TV shows that's ever been on TV, but it's not the kind of thing that you would show in church. Right? It's not aimed at that. Um, so there's that dividing line there. And those are just, they're two different genres, um, frankly. Uh, you know, the other thing to note is that religion has always been there in really high grossing films. And those gro- high grossing films have almost always been horror films. Because horror horror is a place where people still encounter the idea of supernatural, even if they don't believe in the supernatural in their day-to-day life. So, you know, there's definitely, you know, The Exorcist, for instance, if you watch The Exorcist. The 19, I think, or mid-80s, I think 1983 or 84, I was at a sleepover. I was like in, I don't even want to say, I was in elementary school. And I'll never forget it. It like traumatized me for life to see that movie. Absolutely. At the same time, it's probably one of the most, you know, evocative uh, movies about faith and doubt (laughs) and like trying to navigate those things as a person of faith. So I think the thing is that we often equate religious content with safe content and um, filmmakers who make religious movies typically are not interested in being safe. Well, and that's actually you're you're raising another issue here, because for me, when you think of this nexus between film and pop culture, TV, digital streaming and religion, you're thinking of religion in the terms of like whether that's you know Jewish, Christian, Muslim, whatever the, those main tenets are. But sometimes you just think of it as wholesome. Right. Like if somebody sets out and produces a wholesome film, there must be some type of religious backing behind it because you don't see that type of production anymore. Um, and, it, and it's also interesting that R-rated films are not, they don't gross a lot in terms of, I didn't, real, I didn't realize they that. They don't gross very much at all. And, and Hollywood has trended away from R-rated films for decades now. I mean, every Hollywood, um, every Marvel film, for instance, is never going to go above a PG-13 rating. And the simple reason is they're aiming it at teenagers. <laughs> and teenagers have expendable income and movie theaters aren't going to let them in. Um, if it's and- R-rated. Well, right. And that's that's just a, that's not a law. There's no legal reason they can't let uh, teenagers into R-rated films. It's just that there's a handshake agreement between theaters and studios that they won't do that in America. And so, yeah, so most films you'll see come out are PG-13 and an R-rated movie is one that has already slashed its revenue in about, about in half. Um, but really, if you I, I know there's an impression that movies have become like more graphic or something, but it's actually not true. If you work your way back to the 80s and 90s, you'll see that movies have become a lot more sanitized um, over time. Uh, and the the entire reason is always revenue. Hollywood follows the money. Well, and again, that was another thing we discussed on our sit down with, with Tim is that, you know, who do we blame for this? Is it the parents that consumer, the, the consumers, the advertisers, the TV studios, the film industry? Um, and ultimately it goes back to the advertisers who pour money into what they think their consumer wants. But I, but let's talk about, you know, I want to end by asking you, what do you suggest for parents today who just want to find sort of middle of the road, easy to digest uh, programming for their children. And we will get to that. But before we do, you know, Hollywood goes where the money is, but you, you had, you were, you were, you had a conversation with a colleague of yours and you talked about recently going to the cons film festival, which amazing, amazing. And you said, you've noticed more movies about class distinction, race distinction and poverty and revolution. And you said that the cons film festival is really, um, an indication of what's going on in the world. And my question is, is the film industry 
and let's call Hollywood, you know, are they dictating what's going on in the world or are we dictating what's going on in the world and they're creating films as a response? So the first thing to think about with Cannes, for instance, is that those are films mostly made outside of the Hollywood system, not all of them, but they're, you know, largely they're movies that are made by filmmakers from all over the world and they have different funding that they're getting. They have different priorities. Um, you know, sometimes Cannes will show films that are made by filmmakers who are under house arrest in their countries because they're the Russian government, for instance, doesn't, you know, is trying to basically bury a filmmaker who's criticizing the government. So there's a whole lot of things going on when you go to world cinema or, you know, you see an international film festival. Um, As far as Hollywood goes, there's always been an interplay there. So Hollywood has always tried to shape the narratives in America, right? The what do we believe about ourselves? All the way dating back to, you know, from the 30s to the 60s, there was a self-imposed censorship rule where there were many things that Hollywood studios agreed they wouldn't put in films. And that went ran the gamut from, you know, nudity and things like that, all the way to interracial relationships. Those weren't allowed to be shown because they were considered against good American morals. And that fell apart in the late 50s, early 60s, just because things had changed. Um, So what we see is Hollywood reflecting the morals of the time and then also shaping the morals of the time. So even, and shaping our perception of those. So if we go back and watch movies from that era, we might get a different idea of what America was like at the time than what is actually true because there was this understanding that we are creating a narrative for people about who we are and what it is that we that we do. So it's interesting then to watch movies today where there's not a censorship code exactly, but there's a rating system. And the rating system has changed over time, right? If you watch movies from the 80s that are rated PG, often there are things in them that you would never see in a PG rated movie today, right? Notice that for sure. Yeah. And they did at some point create a PG 13 rating, but even then, the ratings have trended more um, stringent over time, not less stringent. So you will see stuff in a PG rated movie from the nineties that you would never see today. I just watched home alone um, for the first time since I was a kid. And because that, you know, it wasn't like my cup of tea and I watched it and I thought you would not see this movie marketed at families today. It wouldn't go this way. There would be changes to it. Well, there's lots of bad language. Um, the violence is pretty extreme for a movie of a PG rating and the family are terrible to one another. I mean, that's a really kind of shockingly toxic family environment. And those are the kinds of things that people actually react to today. And uh, that feedback actually has an effect, right? Because if Hollywood studios know that people don't want to see this, then they're going to shift the kinds of movies that they see. So even watching, you know, a Christmas movie that's PG rated today, you're going to see a different set of, you know, things happening in it. Um, And that's really funny to watch over time because, again, I always kind of had this idea that things are getting worse. Um, Yeah, me too. but, But they're definitely not worse. They're just different, right? There's different sorts of things that people are going for or trying to accomplish with their films. Um, So that's really funny to me (laughs) in a lot of ways. And I also think that it's telling again about the the sort of feedback loop that Hollywood and sort of American society have been in, that Hollywood gives us something, we buy it or we don't. Um, We also are 
taking instruction from it about how we ought to be and what we ought to believe. And then we're feeding that back to the industry. So there's been that kind of loop going for, you know, for the whole time that we've had movies. Well, we want to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to ask you about what it's like being a critic in this current climate and then whether or not we should be going back in time based on what you just said, should we be editing films back in time to make them fit our narrative now? And really it's just, it might be a, um, a good you know, almost documentary of how we've evolved as a community. So we'll come back in just a minute. We'll be right back. This balanced conversation is made possible by Brigitte and Bashar Kalai, Hallie Vanderheider, Sippy and AJ Karana, and Deepwater Productions. If you're interested in furthering our mission of facilitating balanced conversations, offering real solutions, contact us at thebalancevoicepodcast.com. We're back with our guest today, Alyssa Wilkinson, for a really fascinating discussion. So talk to me about being a critic in this current world where everybody's a critic and you have to be super careful about every word. And, and I also want to go back to some of the comments you were making earlier and, and whether or not you think we should be going back into film. And you mentioned Home Alone and it made me think of Trump, which it's like I shouldn't say the, the name, but people have said they want to remove him from that, that quick scene in Home Alone. But in general, going back to films that might be reflecting us, you know, culture and a community at a time and editing them to fit the current narrative. But let's start first. What is it, what does it mean to be a critic and what is it like to be a critic right now? Yeah. So the work of a critic is pretty simple to explain, which is that we make art about art, right? So a good critic doesn't just give you their opinions. It's not just rating a film on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. It's it's crafting a piece of writing or maybe a video or something that helps open up a work of art for the reader or you know the audience audience member. So my goal is that something I write about a film will be useful to read even if you haven't seen the movie, even if you have no intention of seeing the movie. And most critics will tell you that they started um, reading criticism as teenagers um, when they couldn't get access to the movies <laughs> because they weren't in their town or whatever, but they were really interested in what a particular critic had to say. So I think that's, you know, that's what we're after. I think that there was a trend in criticism for a while for people to um, imply that their viewpoint was the only valid viewpoint on a film. And so I think there are some ways in which the feedback mechanism of um, like Twitter <laughs> mostly has been really good for us. I am, I am very careful when I consider what words I'm going to use and what kind of examples I'm going to use and where my biases and blind spots are, because I know that other people are reading and will be you know, communicating with me about them. But one good thing about being a critic is you get really, really used to stating your opinion, um, backing it up, and disagreeing with people. And, you know, it's there's this funny conception sometimes among fandoms out there on the internet that critics all get together and kind of conspire to have critical consensus. And I was joking with some friends that actually whenever we get together, all we do is yell at each other about how wrong we are, but that helps you shape and sharpen your own argument. So I think there's something really healthy about that, that a lot of people could probably learn from, um, particularly in the way discourse is shaped on the internet. And you've commented on the fact that you like listening to critics you disagree with yes. because it helps you whether maybe you'll learn something. And, and I mean, my goodness, if we all thought that way right now, um, wouldn't that be 
unbelievable. <laughs> it would be great. And, you know, this is the, this is part of being a critic is that there's no correct answer to how I saw a movie. All I can give you is how I saw the movie. And so I think that that's a sensibility that we have to develop. I'm not personally threatened by someone who disagrees with me. Um, but I am going to learn something from them, even if I ultimately think I don't agree with your perspective on this. I still can see how you got there if you're any good at being a critic. And that, you know, that helps us to understand how people come at diversity of viewpoints. Diversity of viewpoints, which is a beautiful sentiment. Do you, you know, there's two areas I want to touch on here. Do you feel one that films, it makes sense to go back and edit films to fit the current narrative one? Um, well, actually, let's start there. Do you think that we should be doing that? So, no, we shouldn't be editing anything out of a film that came from the past. Um, uh, you know, that that's too, uh, rather than face up to our history, that's erasing our history. And that is making it seem as if we didn't have those problems in the past. Like, imagine if we took the racism out of a movie. Well, 50 years from now, somebody's going to watch that movie and think, oh, like America's never had a problem with race. Right. So that that would be wrong. However, there are ways of reconsidering things, as we always do with history, where we say, you know, we used to venerate this, but actually maybe we should take a step back and say, here's why this was, you know, denigrating human dignity, or here's why this was perpetuating harmful stereotypes, or here's why this isn't presenting the whole truth about what was going on at the time. Um, you know, I, I recently talked to um, the director of the new documentary MLK FBI, which is about how the FBI surveilled Martin Luther King, which is something that, you know, we tend to forget. I mean, the FBI's on Twitter wishing, at, you know, MLK a happy birthday. And it's like, you you literally sent letters to him trying to get him to kill himself, right? And before you go on, because I want to hear about this, you, you say you just talked to Sam Pollard, who directed the MLK FBI, which details what you said, massive surveillance of Martin Luther King under the FBI, but also Hollywood's role in enabling that kind of surveillance of a private citizen. I didn't I had no idea that this happened. Right. So it's not like a one, two step kind of thing. There's sort of a few dots to connect. But one thing that Sam Pollard pointed out to me um, and points out in the film is that there's sort of two things that Hollywood did for a long time. One is to always present a wholly uncritical uh, perspective on the FBI. And this is during the Hoover era when there were lots of things going on that were, you know, we would consider illegal or at least very ethically questionable, um, especially in America, right? And this went on for decades. And, you know, Hollywood has collaborated with the FBI on this. There's there's a back and forth there. <laughs> um, and there's an even longer tradition of Hollywood presenting really damaging stereotypes of Black men. Um, and we can date this all the way back to the birth of a nation, right? So then the question comes up, should we not watch the birth of a nation? And Sam Pollard would say, absolutely, we should watch The Birth of a Nation. I certainly would say that, too. But I'm sympathetic to the idea that we should put notes at the beginning of films where we say, not say this is problematic, but say this presents a view that's dishonest. So let's watch it for what is good about it, which is it's a revolutionary piece of filmmaking. And let's watch it to remind ourselves that this is not far in the past. This is our recent history. This is 
you know, less than a century ago, this is what we were saying. And this has these effects. So this is what parents should be doing. This is what teachers should be doing, right? This is what writers of film histories and critics should be doing is saying, we're not going to pretend that we didn't do that. We're going to say we did that and it was wrong. And it had these effects and we need to own up to that and know that images have power. And that's something that we have the ability to do and something that, you know, uh, trying to get rid of our history entirely would never accomplish. So on that note, you know, we talk about the role and there's a tremendous value in film and TV production and carrying people's stories and, and revealing horrific things. But I'm curious what you think, especially since you're, you're looking at like the nexus between culture and religion. And to me, again, religion is religion period. It's all faiths. And a lot of, you know, these mainstream faiths share very common principles about uh, so many things. But then you look at films like Cuties, and I'm, I'm trying to think of the Jodie Foster film where she was raped in the um, taxi driver. Uh, yes, on the, yeah. on the on the ping pong on the pool table, and how traumatized that was even for her, you know. But also for us to consume the, to consume it, and then it pushed the envelope. But people now say, but it was it was good to see that it raised awareness. You look at Cuties and the Netflix documentary or, or, or a series that I had many, 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 many issues with. Many. Um, I thought there were very valid points, but I didn't like that they were making a coming-of-age film that brought a 10-year-old girls through something that should have nothing to do with coming-of-age. You know, dancing on a pole, strip, emulating strippers, exposing your genitals on social media. Like, none of that should be have anything to do with coming-of-age. But is there a place for those films in today's society or in the conversation or do they do more harm than good? Well, I think when it comes to these discussions, particularly thinking about Cuties, um, which is a film I saw about a year before the controversy erupted, um, you know, part of the issue that we're running into, I think, right now is um, the same thing that's always been true for films, which is that technology drives the way that they're received, right? So uh, one thing that's true about a film like Cuties is that even a year ago and prior to Netflix picking it up, because Netflix didn't make it, um, it would never have been seen outside of an art house theater context. So I think there's a very valid discussion to be made about the production of the film, consent issues, all of those questions. But as far as seeing it and having discussions about it, it was not well served by Netflix having picked it up because suddenly it's being made available in everyone's living room. Right. And this is a different context than a kind of an art house film situation where people are kind of coming in primed to understand a film based on uh, the form and not just the content. As soon as you move it to a streaming service, it's easy to slice and dice. It's easy to take pieces of something and put it into another context, right? And to kind of pick and choose and remove content from the delivery. So one thing I'm always saying to my students is that a movie is never only what it is about, it's also how it is about it. Right. And so I think with a movie like like Cuties, like Taxi Driver, there's certainly been a long history in Hollywood in particular, which Cuties isn't part of that machine, but of um, exploiting people. Right. Especially women. There's a long history of this. We could ask this question about a whole lot more than just those movies. Right. Um, we could look at 
tons of reality television and ask the same question. Um, but there's a lot of complex factors there, one of which is how is this being delivered to the audience and what kinds of things become available through that delivery in a way that they weren't prior to, you know, to the advent of streaming, frankly. So we end up in a weird situation with that one. I mean, the funny thing about that movie is it's actually a pretty biting critique of the same thing that other people were critiquing when talking about the movie. But a lot of that context just dropped away as soon as Netflix picked it up. And frankly, the way they marketed it was pretty heinous. Um, at the same time, it was interesting to me how many people were up in arms about it who don't talk about, I don't know, like dance moms, right? Like there's lots of things that happen all the time that don't kind of have the same pushback. And I do wonder what the internet and what streaming has created um, in trying to kind of cancel things like that when we don't see that with other very comparable and much more pervasive situations. Such a fascinating topic for me, and I think for many of you. Um, we're about to dive into what digital streaming and how the industry has changed in general, but I wanted to talk about something you'd mentioned a, a little while ago in terms of like ratings and what they mean and what the appetite for people is, and then also about how people are portrayed um, on the screen. I noticed recently uh, two posts, and I, I want to pull them up. One was a, a woman watching Bridgerton, and she said, you know, I, I was really excited to see all the nudity, the, you know, the quote unquote sex scenes, et cetera. Everybody's talking about it. Uh, but there was some concern with it just being there on Netflix and anyone, really your kids, anybody can see that. And I guess it goes to your point about the streaming industry and what's happening and what's being um, not pushed down our throats, but readily made available to all of us at any age at any time and how it can be manipulated. And then the other thing is the, uh, the representation of different classes on or, or minority groups in, in TV and film. And I've seen such a change this year. And I've actually watched with my kids. I said, let's, I want you to show me the main character in the next commercial. I want you to show me the main character in the next TV show. And it has been, a, there's been a wonderful change. I mean, there are more people that look like a minority like myself. I'm seeing more African-American men and women, uh, minorities of every, every, creed, gender, color, orientation, and, and positive ways. Um, and so what really brought me to think of this is a gentleman said online, he said, uh, there was an image of a guy, of a, of a black man walking through um, a desolate town. And he was just walking in up ahead were horses. And he said, and I was just waiting to see like, okay, what's, who's, what's going to happen? Who's going to jump him? And he said, and it was, it was nothing. It was him. And it was, and, and this gentleman, I wish I could find it. He was saying it was such an aha moment of one, how beautiful this depiction was, but how rare it is. And I thought, my God, that's a, that was an aha moment for me too. You know, I, I, I couldn't believe it. So I do think we're headed in the right direction and God, where we should have been decades ago. Like it breaks my heart. But then I also go back to the Bridgerton point on how people are like, this is, this is too much for streaming. And like, there's so much good happening, but there's so much bad too in terms of the content that's available to kids and everybody really. Right. You know, and that I was think too loaded. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think part of the issue here is the same one that we've always had, which is that um, uh, technology runs ahead of protections on that technology. Right. Um, the internet has, you know, frankly, been making 
all kinds of horrible things available to kids for a lot longer than than the last few years. You know, I think a lot of parents are kind of unaware of what their children have been seeing or have had available to them for a very long time. Um, I, you know, one one movie that was very good at showing this, I think, was the movie Eighth Grade, which is really for like older teens and adults, I would say. But um, it helps to point out just kind of the the incredible accessibility of all kinds of content through technology and the fact that tech uh, makes it easy. You know, the fact that kids are usually more tech savvy than their parents means that they can often get to things. Um and, you know, kids have been stealing their parents' magazines for a long time. Like, this, is, this isn't wholly new. It's just everywhere, right? So the question then becomes, do we ask those companies to censor themselves because somebody might run across it? Or do we pour resources into creating safeguards, right? And for, for a lot of companies, I think, you know, they're not being pushed to do that. Um, sometimes I think it's because they just don't. There, there's no financial incentive to, right? So that's something that subscribers have the power to do um, is to insist on on safeguards. Uh, you know, in the case of Bridgerton, like that's, it's, it's, I watched the whole thing. It's trash. It's not that good of a show, right? But yeah, they, you know, what? they're- <laughs> So wait, is it like, so when you say something like that, do, mm -hmm. do the makers of Bridgerton like literally call you and like, why are you criticizing? I mean, have you ever gotten calls like that? Like, how dare you? This is critically acclaimed. It's the number one show on Netflix. Uh, well, Bridgerton, I would, I would say it's not critically acclaimed. Like it's very, <laughs> it's been very steeply criticized uh, among other things. It's handling of race is preposterous, but, um, but you know, it's the number one thing because people watch it. And so they're incentivized to make more of it, right? They're not going to make less of it because everyone watches it. Um, yeah, I have gotten calls at times, but it doesn't matter. I'm not writing for them. I'm writing for readers. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the thing about all entertainment is that kids are going to see what they're avail what's available to them. And it's always been up to parents to figure out what their family standards are and also be aware that like, you can't, you can't guarantee that your kid's not going to, you know, interact with some of these things. I wasn't allowed to watch much TV or films when I was a kid. And we, I wasn't either, but we, when your parents didn't take you to the movies, I mean, you didn't go, I remember like seeing Flashdance. I mean, do you remember Flashdance? I mean, and my parents were like, how did you see fun? I was like, somebody had the VHS yes. video and we watched and they're like, you're not allowed to see that. And that was, I mean, there was no way for me to see it, but now I can tell my kids all day, you're not allowed to watch right. whatever. And it doesn't matter. They're going to, with 17 different gadgets in front of them, they're going to have access to it. So right. I, I want to wrap up by talking one quickly about your book, but two, what is your advice to consumers? Like what, what do we do if we appreciate all of this, all types of genres of film, but we want to either send a message to producers and filmmakers that we, we want to see cleaner content um, or we want to keep our kids from, from taking a peek at things they shouldn't, but we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Today's real solution, as suggested by our guest, Alyssa Wilkinson, is the award-winning film, Eighth Grade. Eighth Grade is a 2018 coming-of-age comedy drama that depicts the life of a middle schooler named Kayla. 
In this film, writer and director Bo Burnham uncovers many of the challenging realities of Generation Z while primarily focusing on the theme of anxiety. This film is rated R, and therefore parental discretion is advised. However, it provides ample opportunity for discussion about the way society impacts our youth. To view the trailer or rent the film, visit our show notes at thebalancevoicepodcast.com. So our guest today, again, Alyssa Wilkinson, and we're so thrilled to be talking to you. Let's talk about, we'll end with your book, but let's talk a little bit more about what you were saying. What do parents do who know that their kids can literally pick up anything at any time and see whatever they want? Well, there's a couple things. So one is, I think, being realistic about how much control you can have over that. Some of it has to do with you know, trust. Uh, some of it has to do with conversation. Some of it has to do with actual technical guards. Like you can put parental controls on most streaming services. You can put them on your TV. You cannot subscribe to them if you want to go that far. There are, you know, there are not no ways to do this. But the one that's bigger and the one that I think of having come from a very sheltered environment and kind of wishing I had had some conversations with my parents, I think, about some of this pop culture, um, is to really make it a family business that we talk about the things that we're watching. Like, maybe we say, like, oh, you know, make a safe space to have a conversation about what it is that we saw. I think for some kids, and I say this just talking to college kids all the time who often come from families that are very protective of them in this way, that they felt like they were going to get in trouble with their parents if they told them what they had seen and it bothered them. Um, And that I think is in the end more destructive because at some point we're going to become adults. We're going to watch whatever we want. It's going to happen. Right. But learning how to healthfully navigate some of these things, I think is really hard for kids. And what you don't want is just their friends helping them navigate it or just the internet. Right. It's, Again, I I bring up the film Eighth Grade because I actually think it models a really interesting relationship here where the eighth grader, uh, you know, has a single father who really cares about her, is a little clueless about what it is she's encountering um, on, I guess it's Instagram because this movie's like two years old. So TikTok wasn't as big of a thing as it is now. But they have these conversations and he's he's made a space for her to come talk to him about these. And that seems so important to me because it is, you know, it is a little bit like trying to keep your kid from ever hearing a swear word. It's not going to happen, but talking about what matters, you know, what does it look like to be a healthy, a healthy teenager? What should I do when I feel depressed? Like all of these questions, sometimes the conversation can even act like, maybe not an inoculation, but at least some kind of a, another input there that is healthy and confident and strong. And I think that's really important. And the conversations don't dictate that your children will like watch and consume and turn out like things you're afraid of, but they will ensure that should your kids come across them. And to your point, they will, that they'll have your values and your opinions and your ideas as a backup. Um, Let's just talk about your book, how to survive the apocalypse. It's 2016. Yeah, it came out in May 2016. I I chose that title in the middle of 2015, so um, <laughs> I wasn't expecting the actual apocalypse. I gotta yeah. say, <laughs> um, 
But it actually was kind of revealing. I mean, one of the so one of the things that we talk about in the book is how apocalypses are moments um, of revealing. So apocalypse doesn't actually mean the end of the world. It means like the curtain being drawn back and you can see what reality is underneath. And that's always been true through all of human history. So we talk about various pop cultural objects that are set in apocalyptic times and also ones that are merely taking place at sort of a cultural apocalypse. So we span everything from uh, Battlestar Galactica and The Walking Dead to Mad Men, which really I would contend is an apocalyptic TV show. It's about the revealing of what's going on underneath. So it's been funny over funny and something else, I don't know, over the last five years or so to see a series of cultural apocalypses happen, including a pandemic that really revealed a lot of inequalities and a lot of, you know, lack of justice, all of these things that are true in our in our society. Um, and then the question is, okay, well, once the reset button has been hit, did we learn from that apocalypse? Or are we just going to create it again? It's been, a, it's been very revealing to, to live the last few years after having written that book. I'm sure it's been fascinating. And the conversation with you is absolutely fascinating. I mean, Alyssa Wilkinson, you are incredible. Uh, anybody interested to follow you can go to the website, alyssawilkinson.com. Anywhere else they should go? I tweet a lot. So you can find me at Alyssa Marie, or um, you can just go to vox.com. All my writing is there. Wonderful. Thank you so much for all you do and for being a guest on The Balanced Voice. Thank you. Okay, we'll catch you guys next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to today's Balanced Conversation. You can find real solutions and tangible resources in our show notes at thebalancevoicepodcast.com. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at thebalancevoicepodcast and on Twitter at balancevoice underscore. Stay up to date on Renya's work by following her at The Renya Report. And we can't wait to see you next week for another Balanced Conversation.